So we are in the book of Joshua. And if you are just joining us for the very first time, this is part three of our journey through the book of Joshua. Part three begins right now. And I'd like to make sure you haven't forgotten that Joshua is a part two. Joshua is a sequel to an ongoing story. A story that has been taking place for for centuries. It is a, a sequel, it is a part two to the Pentateuch, to the first five books, and to the Exodus, where in the Exodus we see God redeeming His people out of slavery, out of Egypt. And then in the book of Joshua, we see God giving them rest. God giving them the land that had been promised for centuries to their father Abraham. Of course, we think of Joshua as the story of the conquest, and and it is. It is the story of the conquest, but beyond the battlefields of Joshua, the book is far more interested in taking possession of the land. The land is a focal point within the story itself. And so, understanding that, that's the, the theme It's the bottom line up front for this story. We begin part 3, embarking in chapter 1, verse 10, and it says, And Joshua commanded the officers of the people. We'll pause right there, unpack this. Joshua commanded the officers. Now, these aren't military officers per se. I'm an army officer. I'm a captain. That's what the railroad tracks on my chest mean. But, but these aren't officers. When it says he commanded the officers, these are not so much military officers as they are, as they are administrative officials. Administrative officials. They are respected leaders in Israel whom the Spirit of the Lord was upon them, according to Numbers chapter 11, verses 16 to 17, and Deuteronomy 1, 15 to 16. And they very well might have had some judicial and even religious duties and responsibilities, according to Deuteronomy 1, 15 to 16, Deuteronomy 16 and 18, Second Chronicles 19, 11, and 34, 13. So not military officers, but rather administrative officials whom the Spirit of God was on and who may have even had judicial or religious duties and responsibilities. And so he's giving them a command. And the word command in the book of Joshua, especially in the first chapter, is very noticeable. This word command or, or an order is used a lot. In fact, it's used back in verse 7, in verse 9, here in verse 10, in verse 11, in verse 13, in verse 16, in verse 18. It's a pretty significant word, this word command. It's popping up all over the place in the first chapter of the book of Joshua. But it's not just a key word in the first chapter of Joshua. It's a key word and very important throughout the entire Pentateuch throughout the entire first five books of the Old Testament. And typically when this word command is used, typically it refers to a command from God for the people. I'll say that again for point of emphasis. When this word command is used, it typically, most of the time, it is referring to a command from God for the people. So in other words, Joshua might give a command or an order. Or someone else might give a command in an order. And if you don't obey Joshua, whoever else is giving that command, it's not as if you're disobeying Joshua. It's as if you're disobeying God, the king. And I think it would help us, especially when it comes to battling sin in our lives, that we would think of it in such a way. 
It's not just a matter of right or wrong or disobeying our parents or whoever it might be. But when the order comes from the Bible itself, it's as if you're disobeying the king. It's like he can say, mountains, move, see, hold back, you do this, and then you have the audacity to tell him no. It's treasonous. And yet we do that all the time. When we see this word command, it typically is a command from God for the people. You're not just disobeying Joshua, oh, by the way. You're disobeying God himself. That's why oftentimes when people ask me questions, like, Joe, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this? I try to, if I remember, to clarify any opinion I have with Well, it doesn't really matter with what I think. What matters is what God says. That's what matters. It doesn't matter what I think. What matters is, what does God say? What does he say? What does he say? And so, we need to ask ourselves this all the time. What does God say about this? Because oftentimes we rely on on people and fact is, at the end of the day, I'm not infallible. God's infallible. I'm fallible. I'm fallible. I make mistakes. I make mistakes. I do. And and to understand that, to understand, okay, what does he think? Okay, what does that person think? All right, but what does God's word actually say? That's the, that's the real question here. And of course, hopefully, if, if my life, if our lives are rooted in God's word, then hopefully all of us may say with Timothy, in Paul's instruction to him in 2 Timothy 2, Timothy, show yourself as one approved before God, a workman, with no need to be ashamed because you're rightly handling and dividing the word of truth. Hopefully, That's taking place. But at the end of the day, as I said, I like to clarify, well, it doesn't really matter what I think. What matters a whole lot more is what does God actually say? When we understand that when this word command is used, more often than not, this is a command from God for the people. From God for the people. So here's the command. Verse 11, it says, Pass through the midst of the the camp and command, there's that word again, command the people... Prepare your provisions, for within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of this land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So here he comes. He says, in three days, this is going down. Whether three days was an estimate or a short period of time, because I didn't know this, I read this, it actually ended up being a week. So whether Joshua says, listen, in three days, and three days meant we got to pack up, and then in three days we're moving out, but sometime right after that we're going to cross, regardless of the numerical divisions, his point is, is this isn't happening later this year, this isn't happening later this month, this is like happening now. This is happening now. If you can imagine when you were younger, and maybe for some of you, this wasn't that long ago, Christmas morning, the excitement, the anticipation, okay, then then you can maybe feel, feel this, right? The people have been waiting for centuries, okay? They've waited a long time. 
And Joshua is saying, it's going down. Like, this is happening now. We're going to take the land. The land that was promised to our ancestor, Abraham. We're taking it. Not later this month, but we're taking it now. We're taking possession of the land. And then verse 12, it says, And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you? Once again, that word pops up. Saying, the Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. So he makes a reference here to the two and a half tribes. I spent a long time looking at verse 12 because I did not know the answer and I had to really, really research. And there wasn't a whole lot of information at first. He references the two and a half tribes. And if you're not familiar with Israelite history and, and how this works, essentially, Tanner, can you throw that up on the, the screen for a second? Israel is made up of 12 states, you might say. 12 states. 12 territories, 12 tribes. And, and this flows from Father Abraham. He had many sons. Yes, he did. Son Isaac, his son Jacob. Of course, Jacob had his sons, and it is from Jacob's sons who are the fathers of these twelve tribes. Of course, if you know, there is no tribe of Joseph. Joseph, the one who was sold into slavery, Joseph who had the coat of many colors, and that is because Joseph received the double honor, the double blessing, and it was his two sons, his older Manasseh, his younger Ephraim, that ended up being and making up two of the twelve tribes. But you pull Joseph out, you add two, we're at thirteen. And of course, if you remember, the Levites, his brother Levi, was set aside. They would be from the priestly tribe. And they would not receive their own territorial claim, but rather the Levites would be scattered throughout all twelve of these states, all twelve of these tribes. Therefore, pulling Joseph and Levi out, we're at ten. We add two of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and we're back at twelve. And so this is right out of my ESV study Bible, which if you don't have one, I'd highly recommend one. They're fantastic. But if you did know that, then you're caught up to speed. But the interesting reference in verse 12 was the reference to the two and a half tribes. Right? The two and a half tribes. More specifically to the half tribe of Manasseh. And you can see it up on the screen here. East Manasseh and West Manasseh. And I couldn't figure out why is there an East and West Manasseh. I've never heard that before. Where did that come from? Because that throws off our numbers a little bit. And if you like TV shows that have flashbacks, then maybe you'll appreciate this, because to find and discover our answer for why there is a division there, for why there is a reference to this half-tribe of Manasseh, we have to go back to the time when Moses was alive, back to Numbers chapter 32, specifically in verse 39. Now, there had been some conversations going on between, essentially, these two and a half tribes and Moses. And they went back and forth for a while until they finally worked out an agreement. And this is what it says. In Numbers 32, verse 39, it says, And the sons of Maker, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead. And captured it and deposed the Amorites who were in it. And Moses gave Gilead to Maker, the son of Manasseh, and he settled it. And Jair, the son of Manasseh, so he's got another son, went and captured their villages and called them Havath Jair. What seems to have occurred back in Numbers chapter 32 is it was during that time in which the Transjordan tribes, these are the tribes mentioned in verse 12, these two and a half tribes, 
that these Transjordan tribes had specifically requested from Moses that they be able to settle the Transjordan region. If you can see, the Jordan River is on the east, the Mediterranean Sea is on the west, but that Jordan River on the opposite side, to the right of it, is the Transjordan region. That's where these two and a half tribes wanted territory. They said, Moses, we fought these guys, we took their land, and we want it. We want that to belong to us. And apparently it seems that even though there are these distinctions within the tribes, within the 12 tribes, there were also distinctions within the tribes themselves. They were clan distinctions. It wasn't just, okay, yes, we're from the tribe of Manasseh, because Manasseh is our father, or he's our grandfather, our great-grandfather, but it is these distinctions, like Jair and Maker, these sons of Manasseh. So it wasn't just, we're on team Manasseh, but we're, we're over here on team Maker, we're over here on team Jair. These clan divisions were even within and coexisted within the tribes themselves. And so, what we see is, some of the clans of Manasseh wanted the area in the Transjordan region, while the others took the other area on the other side, on the west side. Thus, explaining the reference to the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, that is more than just a geography lesson for us today. Especially when we understand that not just were there tribal divisions, but there were clan divisions even within the tribes. And I'll explain that in a few moments. But let us not miss the point here. The instructions he gives to these Transjordan tribes, the two and a half tribes, is this. The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. He's providing you rest and he's going to give you the land. And this is important, especially in lieu of, say, chapter 1, verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. And you know where I'm going, some of you know, because especially when the teachings of the prosperity gospel, I've heard this verse ripped out of the pages of this sacred text and copied and pasted to suit the prosperity gospel pastors felt needs in their collection of private jets. How? Right? Every place that the sole of your foot treads upon, I'm going to give that to you, right? Mm, I'm taking another step for Central Virginia. Mm, Another step for Lynchburg City, right? If you have enough faith, mm, you just name it and claim it. Which, of course, I can't help but think, huh. So, where were you when the Israelites broke camp? Where exactly were you when they were getting ready to cross the River Jordan? Because what's very clear here is that this is a promise to ethnic Israel, to a people that have waited for centuries and centuries to find land, to take the land, to have rest. It is a theme throughout the book of Joshua. They've waited and waited and waited. And this is a promise that they are going to take, a promise made to Father Abraham for land and for rest. And so we continue. Verse 14. It says, Your wives, your little ones, And your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them. Verse 15. Until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land 
the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. There's a reference here to the men of valor. These most likely would have been the military elite. In fact, back in Joshua chapter 8, verse 3, he chooses 30,000 of these men of valor for an ambush. These would have been, if they were army, they would have been the SF guys. These would have been their special forces. The cream of the crop, the best warriors that the army has. If it was the Navy, it would have been the SEALs. If it was the Air Force, I don't know what it would have been. We love all the branches. We love all the branches. But, the, but these essentially, what I want you to see, when it says these men of valor, these would have been their special operators. Okay, these, these would have been like their, their best. Now that's not the point, is to, but to simply recognize them that this is a reference to their military elite. If I could use one word to caption verse 14 and 15, it's the word Unity. I'm going to explain that in a second. But if I, if I use one word to caption, verse 14, 15, it's unity. And keep that word unity in mind as I'm going to read this again. Also, by the way, keep in the, reminder, keep, keep in the back of your mind or in the front of your mind the fact that now there's not only tribal divisions, but there's clan divisions, okay? I'm not saying they didn't get along, but there's, there's, there's teams and then there's teams within teams. And understanding that, and understanding that one word I used to caption it, unity, think that, Think about that as we read 14 and 15 again. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor, those are your special forces, guys, among you shall pass over arm before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. There no doubt is a concern for the sake of unity here. It's not, okay, well, some of the tribes are going to get their land first. Okay? Just how it works out geographically. Some of them will get their land first. But just because... Those tribes get their land first. It doesn't mean that they're punched the clock and they're off. Okay, no. No, no. Uh, you're going to send all your SF guys. Everyone send SF guys. I don't care whether you already got your territory, whether you already got your land, or whether you haven't got your land, because we're in this until the end, until everyone gets the land that's been promised to them. It is certainly attack, an attack against self-centeredness, there are no lone rangers, not only in the military, but in the Christian life as well. Joshua's making it very clear. Israel, we're in this together. We're in this together, Israel. No one's going to be selfish here. No one's going to just peace out because, well, everything's already set for you. Okay, you've got, already got everything figured out, or you had such a wonderful week, or month, or year. That's not happening. We're going to be there for each other. 
We're going to support each other. Why? Because Israel, we're a family. We are the covenant people of God. I read this and I'm... I'm convicted of selfishness. I love it when people help me. But I'm not always willing to help others. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. I want people to be there for me. But am I willing to be there for others? For others. I think this is just so important to understand and and how we apply this, right? Because there's a lot of applications here. This is the, the, the... Israel is the covenant people of God and we see the church today as the new covenant people of God. And I would say this really first begins, I think, breaking pride and selfishness is understanding that first and foremost that church is not an event that we go to. If you came here today, you did not go to church. Unless you're not a Christian in here. If you're not a Christian, you went to church. If you are a Christian, you didn't go to church because we are the church. We gathered together here. And you say, well, that's just semantics. No, that is the building block of understanding that we are the covenant people of God as the church. From every tribe, from every race, from every ethnic linguistic background, we are the covenant people of God. And that we see ourselves not like a family, but as a family, is important to attacking the self-centeredness that we have in what I often refer to as consumeristic American Christianity, which seeks to serve me. Serve me. Serve me. Transjordan tribes, I don't care if you got your land already. You're going to send your special forces, guys. You're going to help out the other tribes. You're going to help them out because we're a family. Those are your brothers and your sisters. You got that? Paul might say this another way. He might frame it like he does in Galatians chapter 6.10. So then... As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and to especially those who are of the household of faith, right? Do good to everybody, sure, but especially those who are of the household of faith. Especially those who are of the household of faith. Especially those who are of the household of faith. Your brothers and sisters in the faith. You know, that's why, and if you, if you guys have been in LFL, you, you know you know what's coming, right? And if you haven't been in LFL, it's certainly applicable here. And I, uh, people say I'm kind of tough in LFL. <laughs> I tell people, you need to come and, and be a part of us when we gather together on, on Monday nights, LFL, or whatever the night is that we're gathering together. You need to do that. You need to be a part. Well, Joe, I had a good week. I don't really feel the need. And that's true. Like, this is part of this consumeristic mindset. Like, oftentimes we're motivated to go when we didn't have a good week. Or when we're in need. We need help. And that's not a bad thing to come when we're in need and we need help and we're just broken and hurting. It's not a bad thing. But it is certainly a selfish thing when we say, well, I don't really need to. I mean, this is just such a great week. Or whatever the reason is. Because... 
This is this consumeristic, self-centered mindset, oftentimes. I'm not saying always, but I'm saying many times it is. It is, certainly. Because we're not thinking in those moments, whenever the gathering is throughout the week, about other people. I wonder how I can love and serve them this week. I wonder how I can pray for that person, how I can meet their needs physically, spiritually, emotionally this week, maybe in my prayer pot or or maybe somewhere else. And, And this is what we need to understand. This is what we need to understand. The focus here is that of unity. The focus here is just cutting down self-centeredness. The theme of the story is taking possession of the land. The theme of the story is finding rest. And for many of us, we say, well, I already found rest. I found rest, right? Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Last week was Easter, right? And we celebrated We celebrated what Jesus did for us. And many of you say, I love Jesus. I have found that rest for my soul. And yet, for many of us, that creates a spiritual apathy. Well, I'm already going to heaven. I've booked my ticket. I've punched my card. I'm just going to sit back. And oftentimes, those of us who have already found the rest, we become negligent. And we miss opportunities to bless and serve and love and care for other people. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded of this, that we are the people of God. Just as Israel was the people of God here in Joshua, today the church is the people of God today. And we should be doing this. We should be caring. We should be loving. We should be helping. We should be serving one another because we are a family. Not like a family. We are a family. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. None of you are going to sit on the sidelines, Joshua tells them. It's not happening. You're going to send your your, your special forces guys, and you're going to help out your brothers and sisters because they need your help. They need your help. You're not going to sit back because you found your land, you found your rest. We're going to help each other. Oh, that our our pride, our self-centeredness might be broken, might be cut down in lieu of this passage. Listen, we're not alone. These people struggled with it too. I struggle with it all the time. I do. So what? So we repent and we say, God, help us to be the sort of sacrificial and serving brothers and sisters to our family members. He continues with one final thought. Verse 16. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded, there's that word again, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you, as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandments, disobeys your words, Whatever you command him, he shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. 
only be strong and courageous. Here they're coming alongside, I think, a very well-intentioned, a very sincere people trying to encourage Joshua. And we've talked about how hard it must be for Joshua. He is trying to fill impossible shoes that he cannot fill right now. Moses is the only leader these people have ever known. Moses is the only leader their parents ever knew. And here comes the kid, right? The kid. Here comes Joshua. And he can't. He can't. He has an impossible task before him, and he can't. At least not on his own. But they they try to be pretty encouraging to him. And they tell him, verse 17, just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. I'm thinking, just as we obeyed Moses in all things. Okay, like I'm doing this, I'm sure Joshua's maybe raising an eyebrow a little bit, like, just as you obeyed Moses in all things? I mean, maybe I'm a little shaky in my Old Testament history, but all I need to do is go back to Exodus 24, and I quote, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. And then, I don't know, a hot ten minutes later, once Moses goes up the mountain, what do they do? They get Aaron to build him a golden calf. I mean, they literally just said, we're going to obey you. Everything you say. And, and no sooner is he gone. And once again, the Israelites' history, which is replete with this, examples of complaining, examples of rebellion, examples of outright disobedience, again and again and again. And here, they're giving Joshua, their, I, I, I think they're trying to be sincere. Trying to get in their minds. I think they're, they're really well-intentioned here. And they're like, yeah, we're going to obey you the same way that we obeyed Moses. And if I'm Joshua, I'm like, please don't. <laughs> please do not obey me the way that you obeyed Moses. Because that just didn't work out very well, guys. I was there. Don't do that. And yet that's, that's what they say. And as I said, I think they are well-intentioned here. I think they are. I think they're very, very sincere. But Joshua knows this, just as you chuckle at the history and knowing the history of Israel. For Joshua, when it comes to where he can look to help for, probably not so much in the people. I mean, spoiler alert, they're going to mess up in a few chapters, despite saying this. They are. And so do we. I think for Joshua here, despite how well-intentioned and sincere I think these people are legitimately being right now, I think it's a reminder to him, because he knows Israelite history, it's a reminder to him that there's one place that he needs to look for help first. I'm not saying you can't have help from other people, but there's one place that he needs to look for help first from. And it's not to their promised obedience, but it's to God. It's to God. In fact, Throughout this story, God has told him, be strong and courageous. And here the people remind him of what God has said, to be strong and courageous. Do I look to others for help first? Or do I get on my knees and go to the king? Do I open the book? And you should open the book. Because it's a good book. First. Yeah, I think they're being well-intentioned, and I think they're being sincere. 
And yet, oftentimes, we are very well-intentioned, and oftentimes, we are very sincere, and we really, I think, oftentimes, want to do the right thing, and it just doesn't always happen. And in the same way, I think here, that Joshua needs to first and foremost look to God for help, but we, as the people of God, need to look to God for help in order to help us obey. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned you are, how sincere you are. That's not what this is about. We need God to help us. It's not enough simply to say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, all day, every day. That's great. But that's hard. Temptation comes. The flesh begins tugging on us. And our willpower breaks. So then what? We need grace from the one who gives it. We need grace in order to be, as Joshua 1.7 says, strong and courageous in order to carefully obey all the things that Moses has given to us. If you're just going to rely on yourself, you'll probably fail. Just like these people who are very well-intentioned would fail a few chapters later. We need God's sustaining grace so that we, unlike these people, you might say, that we look first and foremost to God for our help. Joshua needs to first and foremost look to God for help, not rely first and foremost on the people's promised obedience. In the same way, we need to look to God first and foremost for help in order to obey, to be strong and courageous, to be careful, to follow the road that God has for us. Not to deviate to the right, not to deviate to the left, but to stay the course, to finish the race. We need His strength. We need Him to give us courage in those moments that we might remember what Joshua's name means. Yahweh saves. Yahweh delivers. Okay? It's a good anti-willpower statement right there. You don't save. You don't deliver. But God does. And that saving and delivering may be from sin, from temptation, from many things in our lives. We need more of a God-focused mindset and less of a man-focused, self-centered, will-powered emphasis. And so, I think it begins by asking for help. As the band comes, I want to pray. Lord, St. Augustine prayed centuries earlier, a prayer that I have prayed many times, a prayer that we now pray collectively. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. Lord, command what you will and give what you command. In other words, God, we need your help to give us the things, give us the strength, to give us the courage to battle through temptation. God, I pray that we would rely more on you and less on ourselves and our own willpower. 
God, that you would make us a people, a people who, who view the church less of an event and more of a community on mission to make disciples. That we would see the church as a family, that we would see the church as your new covenant people, that you'd break us of self-centeredness and that we would look to the cares and concerns of others who need physical, emotional, spiritual help and support, that we would be there for each other as a family. We need your help, Jesus. Give us grace. Give us strength. Give us courage. And help us to remember the constant subtle reminder of Joshua's name that Yahweh saves and Yahweh delivers. Amen.